and welcome to Top in Tech. I'm Colin Darcy, Senior Practice Director at Global Council and regular host of this podcast. Today, we're going to assess the latest happenings in global tech policy, focusing on what we see as two of the key developments in global tech policy. First, I'd like to welcome Teresa Dumchin for her podcast debut. Teresa is going to talk us through how the war in Ukraine has transformed or not cybersecurity policy globally. Teresa is based in our London office and leaves on cybersecurity policy within GC, and she was previously a cyber threat intelligence researcher. Second, we're going to touch on a similar theme around how protecting democracies in a digital age presents a whole range of legislative and regulatory challenges, but it's going to be from a slightly different angle. So in the second half, Jack Keevil from GC's Brussels office is going to talk us through the European Media Freedom Act. Welcome to you both. Teresa, I'd like to start with you and Russia, Ukraine, the war and cybersecurity policy. So I think we're about say eight months now from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I recall distinctly in the build-up to the war and in its early days, apocalyptic warnings at times around what might happen with cyber attacks and how the West and Ukraine need to prepare their cyber defences. So I think eight months is probably enough for us to at least have some initial views on, on what has happened and what we're seeing. So could you comment, uh, just to kick us off, on what has happened so far? Have we seen more threats quantitatively? And have we seen a greater variety of threats from Russia towards Ukraine? Let me start by just saying two points here. First, surprising all the cybersecurity community is that Russia's attacks have dealt little damage overall. And secondly, Ukraine's defense has performed relatively well. Now, going into the threat landscape, what we've seen is, yes, there has been a massive increase in cyber attacks. There have been only over 1,500 attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure, but the dark numbers might be much higher because often unsuccessful attacks are not reported. These attacks have been broad, well-prepared, but also relatively uncoordinated in involving proxy groups such as Conti, which is a leading ransomware group. In the types of attacks we've seen, we've seen the typical phishing attempts um, with wiper malware attached, which are supposed to literally wipe um, data and software from systems and make them unusable. We've seen um, Russia's specialty software targeting industrial control systems using a software called InController, um, which is similar to Stuxnet and similar to Triton, which took out Ukrainian power grids in 2016. And attacks were most powerful at the start of the war, and recently we've seen that the intensity is still the same, but quality seems to have gone down, which might be because now attacks have less time for preparation and more resources might be taken up by cyber defense on Russia's side. The targets uh, that are most prevalent are telecommunication infrastructure, healthcare, power grids, satellite system, frontline communication, and government websites, which are targeted by denial of service attacks. And the thing that I mentioned in the beginning that little damage has been dealt overall is, for example, in targeting the telecommunication infrastructure, 
It's only been taken down for 24 hours and it's often really established very quickly so that the impact of these attacks um, don't achieve their goal of supporting kinetic warfare or demoralizing the Ukrainian public overall. I could be right in saying then that some of the dire warnings before the war and in the early days have not really been borne out in in what's happened. Of course, cyber warfare has been a major factor and clearly there's been some impact, but actually the scale of the damage inflicted by Russia on Ukraine via this mechanism has actually been potentially lower than we we initially thought it might be. However, there's, there's clearly it's clearly a big factor and it's clearly something not only those in Ukraine, but also in the wider Western alliance and in NATO have been thinking about and are being moving to respond to. So could you just talk to us a little bit about what has NATO said or done on cybersecurity since February and the outbreak of war? Yeah. And before, like to your last question, actually, there's a big, big caveat that this war isn't over yet. And there's a lot of tools that Russia doesn't seem to have employed yet. So while we speak, the situation could go way worse. But when looking at NATO, um, one interesting thing actually happened last le- uh, week with Jens Stoltenberg um, actually saying that a cyber attack could invoke Article 5, which is a point which was always a bit ambiguous, whether that could um, happen. It's definitely something that Russia will consider because there are three main points that have led to Ukrainian defense being as strong as it is. First is definitely preparation, and the West has played an important part in that. Um, Ukraine has been preparing thin- since 2014 to be uh, in, in a cyber war with Russia. So it's created backup databases to get systems back running, even if they have been breached. It's um, been raising public awareness and it's been training and it's received training from NATO and EU member states in cybersecurity. And then collaboration with NATO and civil society, industry and the EU has really empowered Ukrainian cyber defense. It's published its cyber strategy in 2016 and really laid the groundwork for collaboration in adopting technical standards that are in line with EU standards and NATO standards. It's also collaborated with Estonia, a leading cyber nation, and had a look at its Defense League cyber unit, which employs volunteers and participants, which are mostly IT professionals. And we think that the so-called Ukrainian cyber army, which is of roughly 4,000 private individuals help aiding the Ukrainian cyber defense is something that Ukraine has learned from Estonia. We've also seen that uh, the Lithuania coordinated rapid response teams and mutual assistance and cybersecurity team has been deployed for the first time ever in February. So that is a team that consists of eight to 12 cybersecurity experts um, that are there to help Ukraine Ukrainian institutions in particular facing cybersecurity challenges. And then the last point is that Ukrainian databases have been a lot more resilient because a lot of those have been moved outside of Ukraine geographically. And that was with the help of a lot of big tech actors in in the US and following that Ukrainian data might now actually be stored on servers in the US. Russian actors might think three or four times of attacking these because as I said in the beginning, this could theoretically trigger Article 5 collective actions by NATO. So 
the NATO has essentially focused on supporting Ukraine in building up its cyber defense. And it sounds like there's extensive collaboration happening both at NATO level, but also bilaterally between Ukraine and individual countries. You mentioned Estonia and Lithuania there. And it sounds like it's been relatively effective with the caveat that you make that the war's not at an end, uh, particularly as the war goes against Russia. We've seen Russia acting in a in a potentially more desperate way. And while that's been more in uh, air raids and uh, the use of drones, it could also apply potentially in the future to, to cyber attacks as well. Can we take this now to the prism of how some of our listeners from businesses are going to think about this? We're sitting here in an office in London, each country, whether it's the UK or at EU level or individual member states of the European Union, have their own cybersecurity laws and frameworks. Are we seeing more compliance rules appearing in the UK? Um, are there new rules targeted at cybersecurity providers or is it at the customers of those cybersecurity providers? Say, you mentioned earlier the telecom sector in, in Ukraine, but clearly the telecom sector in the UK is a potential target for cyber attacks. So can you just talk us through what, what's the UK doing specifically on this and how does it impact on businesses? Interestingly, a lot of relevant cyber policies have happened or have been published right before the start of the war for Ukraine. For example, the national cyber strategy has been published in, in December last year. And one consultation, which would be quite relevant in this in this area, the consultation on re um configuring the network and information systems regulation, the NIS, is underway and is still, I think, being considered right now. In line with the government cons uh, commitments in the national cyber strategy, um, there are three pillars of this consultation, which could be informed by our learnings from the war in Ukraine. So the first pillar deals with the expansion of the regulation to other digital service providers so that more companies would be brought within the remit of UK cybersecurity regulation framework. And this would basically allow the government to have more, um, to require more companies to have adequate protections um, in place. And Pillar 2 covers um, to proposals to future-proof existing cybersecurity legislation. This basically says that there will be more reviews of cyber policies uh, regarding the ongoing situation. Pillar 3 identifies cybersecurity as a, as a chartered profession, which will help um, potentially smaller companies who want to build up their cyber capabilities to identify who is a good cyber professional, who can I hire, because often... SMEs are the ones that are targeted by attacks in the most vulnerable. And um, they're obviously a big part of, of the economy. And this would make it a lot easier for them to hire cybersecurity professionals um, without having actually too much information about cybersecurity itself. Um, one interesting lesson also for companies dealing with cyber threats that I heard from the cyber consulting sector a lot is that they are preparing to deal more with state actor threats, which is a big difference between dealing with ransomware groups who only have economic gains in mind. A state actor might attack you again and again, notwithstanding if you have money to pay or not, um, and notwithstanding whether they lose reputation or not, especially in a situation like now. Um, 
Further, experts are warning that in the future we might see more attacks on heating systems, on power and infrastructure in Ukraine and in Europe, while power systems are quite vulnerable right now. And another future policy method we could see is that threat monitoring takes a bigger, uh, a central position in the government's approach, because one of the major lessons we've learned from Ukraine is that threat monitoring then leads to quicker reactions to a threat, then leads to better mitigation strategies. So we might see more requirements of reporting um, cyber attacks, even if they were unsuccessful, and closer collaboration between business and government. And I think especially the cyber threat intelligence and cyber threat monitoring companies will be very happy to hear that. So in that sense, sounds to me like the UK's framework is going to do a little bit of both. So the number and variety of companies that will be subject to reporting obligations under the cybersecurity frameworks will it will increase. So more will have to comply. Um, on the other hand, there's also going to be changes in and around cybersecurity professionals and the standards that are in place, which would have implications both for those critical national infrastructure and other companies within the cyber framework, but also for cybersecurity companies themselves that are providing those services. So there is change uh, coming down the track on both sides of the ledger. So Jack, let's bring you in here. It'll be interesting to hear from the EU side of things. We, we know that the EU has been pushing an ambitious reform agenda on cybersecurity. What it has been prioritizing and the extent to which it reflects what Theresa has just described in the UK. Essentially, the EU is becoming more focused and more specific in its cyber legislation. Um, the NIST directive, has, the Network and Information Security Directive, has been in place for quite some time and also transposed into the UK. Um, and it was in the evaluation, it was basically found to be a good idea but the implementation was difficult. So they've now sought to revise that in the last couple of years by uh, broadening the number of sectors uh, that are affected, that are concerned by the security rules um, and also the entities involved, and overall sought to increase the sort of member, state, member state's cybersecurity capacities. Um, that's already sort of in the past. Now what the, the commission has most recently proposed is a so-called Cyber Resilience Act. And the basic aim of this is to go beyond this kind of uh, rules and requirements for, uh, you know, for entities, for public organizations, um, and to focus on the products and services that you use in your day-to-day -day life. That's the kind of connected devices, IoT devices uh, that we all uh, know and love and also present an attack surface for hackers. Um, and the aim is to make them more secure by introducing baseline security requirements for these products themselves, uh, including in the way they're sort of manufactured or, or, or coded. Uh, the push for this, of course, comes from um, the perceived uh, threats from uh, Europe's, from beyond Europe's eastern boundaries, um, as well as the kind of the uh, commission observation that cybercrime costs Europe 5.5 trillion euros each year. So clear impetus there. Um, and so they've not just taken a kind of a blanket approach. I mean, there are baseline requirements that go across the board for all sorts of products and services with a digital element to them. Um, but there's also a narrower category, although still quite a long list, of critical products with digital elements, as they're termed in the, in the legislation, uh, that would be struck, uh, subject to stricter requirements. And we're talking things like identification systems, password managers, routers, anything that could be 
sort of used exploited to gain access to the rest of the network. Um, so the legislation was published in the last month and we'll be keeping lawmakers busy uh, kind of fine-tuning the various different provisions and lists and so on during the course of the next year or so. So it sounds to me like there are clear parallels there between what both the UK and the EU have been doing. Theresa, you mentioned the NIS directive, the NIST directive, whatever we want to call it, which is obviously something that the UK has inherited from its time as an EU member state. And from what you said, Jack, the broadening of the number of companies uh, that will have to be subject to the reporting rules under this directive is happening both on the EU side and the UK side. So clearly the, the impetus reform there is, is pretty similar. Sounds to me like there's, there's other reforms, which I think there are a few areas similar in the UK where a broader cybersecurity agenda is moving from just the critical national infrastructure level down to day-to-day -day products and services, which obviously is not just important for security at home, but is also in organizations, you could think of, say, government departments and uh, various other places where such uh, equipment like routers will be quite important in making sure they are robust for cybersecurity defenses moving forward. Teresa, let's, let's wrap up the discussion quickly by sort of going back to where we started. We were talking initially about what Russia has been doing in the cybersecurity and cyber warfare sphere before, during, and since the outbreak of war in Ukraine. It comes to mind that there's, this isn't just a Russia-Ukraine, Russia-West dynamic. There are a lot of other actors in, in cyber warfare. Have we seen much happening, particularly when we think about some of the dire warnings about, about China and Chinese security from the security services in the UK, the US, and elsewhere? Have we seen much activity from China, from the data sources that we have with regards to Ukraine? Currently, we do not have evidence that China has, has helped Russia in its, in its cyber attacks in any ways. And it's important to note and interesting to note that attacks have largely stayed within the confines of Ukrainian geography. Interestingly, though, China has ramped up its cyber attacks on Taiwan when it also did a lot of military action around the Taiwanese peninsula that was paired with cyber attacks, denial of service attacks, for example, taking some Taiwanese government websites down. However, like it's important to notice that denial of service attacks don't deal any more harm than just taking websites down for a while. So they're not as disruptive as, for example, wiper attacks and other attacks. Traditionally, China has been more of an actor who, which engaged more in industrial espionage and government espionage, and that will certainly continue. Um, but there's a there's a good possibility that not only we, but also China is looking at Ukraine and destroying its lessons. For example, how to integrate cyber into its larger military operations, how to use information warfare effectively, which uh, Russia has been really effective in like influencing elections and um, influencing sentiments of, of, of people around the world towards the, the conflict, especially in, in, in the global south. And China will definitely draw lessons from that as well. Maybe to, to end on, on one positive note, if we compare how Russia or China or authoritarian states engage with cyber versus how the West has been engaging or like democracies have been engaging with cyber is that 
the lessons we learned from Ukraine is that collaboration at the center of a good cyber defense is really powerful and that that's something democratic states can do because they have trust in each other and they have um, long-term and probed allyships that have developed over years and also within NATO and the EU, that they have been really powerful and that we've seen through the cyber uh, war in Ukraine that the Western alliances have been moving closer together and have been improving in their collaboration. And I think that's a very positive note to take away from. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point there, Teresa, to to move into the second section of of our discussion today because Jack Teresa was emphasizing there the benefits of collaboration and the benefits of working together as a community of countries uh, and that applies to uh, cybersecurity but it also applies in many other different realms and perhaps the European Union is the most obvious uh, demonstration of that and we're talking today about a second thread around protecting democracies. One clearly is around the information war, uh, around cyber resilience, cyber security. But the other is about the health of our media. And we've seen throughout the Ukraine crisis that there have been important threads that have played out within the media. So we saw RT and Sputnik, for instance, getting uh, getting uh, restricted uh, in the European Union in the early stages of the war. But that's more of a sort of defensive agenda. There's also a little positive agenda about bolstering European media landscape. And what we've seen from the European Commission is the publishing of something known as the European Media Freedom Act, which sounds uh, pretty bold and visionary. Um, but I suspect our listeners probably don't know the details as well as you do. And I'd be grateful if you could just very quickly talk us through the headlines of this proposal and also what the European Commission is looking to achieve from this act. Well, so you mentioned the kind of external threats, as it were, that's been uh, on the radar since, um, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But for several years now, the European Commission has also been observing a kind of internal threat to the European Union where it comes from, and it's basically the the, the decline of press freedom in certain member states. Um, most obviously, this has been in Hungary and Poland, uh, where the governing parties have been attacking the kind of either the revenue streams or the sort of licenses to operate of various uh, critical media, whether that's national papers, TV stations with, you know, alleged or uh, obvious even links to, to the US and so on. Um, all in the name, essentially, of reducing the kind of the amount of uh, criticism of, of their, their policies in the public sphere. Um, so Hungary, Hungary and Poland, most obviously, but also in other member states, Greece, Slovenia, Malta have all been found um, to have been making the lives of, of journalists more difficult. So combating this type of situation and protecting the European Union as a union, not just of economic cooperation, but also one of values, has been uh, top of mind for the European Commission and was the, the motivating factor behind the European Media Freedom Act. Okay, well, let's sort of, that, that sounds quite coherent and quite logical. It doesn't sound like it's without controversy, but you sort of get where uh, the Commission is coming from there. Um, but what I don't quite understand is that there are these other bits, aren't there, to the European Media Freedom Act. It's not just about the issues related to Hungary and Poland. We've got 
issues around media ownership laws. We've got how social media platforms treat the news media. I mean, why is why have we found ourselves with all these different bits and pieces put together when ultimately what we're trying to deal with is some particular issues about the robustness of the media in certain EU member states? Well, I, th- I think the short answer to this is that, is that there are potentially a lot of ways to put pressure on media organisations. Um, a lot of what the Commission has proposed has been previously identified in their annual rule of law reports. So where they go and assess the state of the rule of law in the different member states. Um, the last one made recommendations to strengthen sort of media freedom in eight different in eight different countries, um, and proposed quite a range of measures uh, to do that. Um, so at the end, with this kind of mixed bag, and we also have to remember that the media sector is not homogenous. So print media and the business models and their interests differ from those of public broadcasters, who differ from those of private broadcasters, and so on across the board. So if you want to do something comprehensive, which I think this was the was the intention of the commission, you do have to have this kind of grab bag uh, approach. I mean, if I had to give an, an example, I mean, I think there was a certain amount of desire from parts of the what we might term the media sector to see stronger a stronger regulatory body, possibly looking with slight envy at one in different sectors, maybe the telecoms regulated Barrick, um, although the telecoms regulated might question whether that's a great model, um, but they, perhaps but it's relatively empowered compared to what there was to regulate the media sector. Um, and so I thought that would be a great a great thing to have. However, that doesn't sit well with, for example, the print media who traditionally have been subject to a kind of self-regulatory code of practice type uh, regime. So you see the kind of differences that come that's, uh, that can lead to, again, the sort of grab bag of issues. And on the social media side, um, on this question of how... Uh, how social media platforms, big, very large online platforms, to use the DSA language, um, should treat media content. Basically, the Commission has tried to introduce measures to prevent over-removal of the content by big tech, um, building on things like DSA and also the platform to business registration uh, regulation. Um, uh, I think another interesting thing to note is that the Commission has not and this is where we go back to perhaps a point you were raising earlier about how good it is to cooperate in things. Um, the European Commission is limited in what it can do. So member states have only given it certain competences and media is not one of those competences where the European Commission can take sort of unilateral action. It can only supplement and guide uh, what or recommend what the member states do for obvious reasons because the media and the, and the sort of public sphere is a very sensitive democratic area. Um, and so what the Commission has chosen to do in this case is make the basis for their proposal their power to act to ensure the functioning of the EU internal market, um, which where it has much more power, of course, uh, but makes for kind of very uncomfortable reading for a media sector that's really quite uh, reluctant, quite um, reticent to have any semblance of a sing- an EU single market for media when it's closely related to uh, things like national legal traditions, um, language, culture, and these are very, you know, member state focused areas. So you said there, Jack, that the Commission was always going to do something comprehensive. The problem with doing something comprehensive is that you give everyone something to hate rather than something more specific where you have a much narrower field and therefore 
potentially fewer opponents against the measures that you're trying to bring forward. So let's get into that practical politics. Has the commission bitten off more than it can chew? Well, very possibly. I mean, there, there, but there are people who like it, <laughs> or stakeholders who like it. I mean, journalist organizations have been very vocal in their support because of the provisions on um, protecting them from things like spyware. Uh, which is, comes in light of the Pegasus uh, spyware scandal that we saw recently. Um, NGOs campaigning for press freedom, media freedom, also like it very much and want to add even more things to the mix. Um, and other t- types of media will like certain parts as well. I mean, uh, the, the kind of broadcast media will like things like the the harmonized uh, method for calculating audiences. They find this very helpful. Uh, public service broadcasters find a lot to like in the text due to the stronger protections from government influence that they have, because of course they're particularly vulnerable given their revenue streams to state pressure. Um, although either that comes even as their private sector counterparts, counterparts are much more cautious about the obligations that they'll face under the regulation. Um, and, and all this basically hints at the bet the commission is making, as which is can we make a sort of broad enough coalition that likes enough of the individual parts to kind of squeeze it through the legislative machinery in Brussels. Um, and to do so, they have the sort of political cover of fighting this quasi-existential, quasi uh, quasi-existential threat to the European Union as a community of values, which is really what um, what they see in the, the the moves made by the Polish and Hungarian governments over uh, the previous years. Um, so strong political impetus, very difficult politics, and really quite a fragile coalition um, that will come together to get it through if they can. Well, thanks, Jack. I, I do wonder as well whether even if this proposal gets through, whether there could be a legal challenge for the reason that you flagged earlier on, that the legal basis the commission is using, uh, some might argue it's it's not the correct legal base, uh, potentially could go against the treaties and therefore might be vulnerable to a challenge at the European Court of Justice. But I suppose let's get past the first hurdle of seeing whether the legislation passes in the first place for uh, we see whether legal challenges emerge. Theresa, let's let's just jump across the channel here. Uh, the UK has its own media bill as part of the government's agenda. Let's put to one side the fact that the UK government, at the time of us speaking, is at a state of total crisis. Assuming that it wasn't the case, and we just focus on the substance of the media bill itself, are there any obvious parallels between what Jack has just described in the European Media Freedom Act and the UK's media bill? That's a good question. Let's just recap on the three main provisions in the UK media bill. So one is uh, the privatization of Channel 4. Another one is the introduction of video-on-demand code to mirror the broadcasting code. And the third one is the prominence requirements for public service broadcasters on smart devices which basically means um, having BBC as the first channel on your smart device, perhaps. So from that perspective, the main overlap is in introducing requirements on online platforms to prioritize and grant special protections to content produced by other media services, such as public service broadcasters in the UK and media service more generally in the EU. 
Um, however, what we what we see is that in Europe, this is mainly coming from a place of wanting more media plurality, anti-disinformation, anti-interference uh, interventions, pro-competition positions. Whereas in the UK, it's more of an explicitly pro-public service broadcasters situation. Okay, so we're, we're talking about two quite different things. There are clearly at stake here the question of how new digital media interacts with the older media, with traditional broadcasters, with public service broadcasters, and so on and so forth. But the focus of what the EU is doing and the UK is doing are quite different, and that reflects that the fact that the UK very much outside of the EU now, with its own very distinct broadcasting landscape, is focuses on some very specific issues around the UK, even if the broader digitization of the industry is the framing in which they're both happening. So Jack, I often do this to you when you join the podcast, uh, but I'd like to find out from you your view on whether the European Medium Freedom Act will actually be in place. And by that, I mean, will it be agreed by the legislative institutions in Brussels before the European elections uh, in 2024, what what do you think as of today is most likely to happen? Will it become law or will it spill over into the next term? Yeah, I don't like this question very much. Um, <laughs> I think it's very hard to say for a normal file, you know, one where there's a decent political consensus by, behind it and a sort of clear focused mandate. They have plenty of time, you know, a, a year and a bit is, is is plenty of time to negotiate a piece of legislation and get it get it uh, into the official journal. Um, and it is quite rare for a file to be blocked completely. There's only kind of a few examples really per per commission that litter the the history of sort of uh, the sort of graveyard of proposals. Uh, but this one has difficult politics. It's got a controversial premise in this sort of taking internal market measures and putting them into the media sector and there are important stakeholders mobilized against part of it so for me the prognosis is not great but never say never so we're never going to say never and we we rarely at global council want to make predictions that can come unstuck but at the moment we would say this is a challenging political and legislative environment for the European Media Freedom Act. We will definitely come back to this topic as well as other controversial pieces of legislation in Brussels, such as that focusing on child sexual abuse material, where again, there's lots of controversial issues involved. Jack is leading on both of those within GC. So we'll come back to him on both of his predictions at some point through the course of next year, which I'm sure Jack will be delighted about. Anyway, I'd like to say thanks to, to Jack and, and Teresa. Um, I hope listeners enjoyed that journey through, I think Jack put it quite well, between both the external threats to Europe and the UK from cyber warfare, as well as to Ukraine, obviously, but also those internal threats that we see in the erosion of democratic and media norms in certain European countries. And if you, your business or your investment are exposed to these trends, both on the cybersecurity side, but also in the broadcasting, streaming uh, sectors, please don't hesitate to get in touch with either Jack or Teresa. You can find their contact details on the GC website, which is www.global-council.com, or you can find it in the link in the podcast notes. Thank you very much. The next episode that we will be broadcasting is going to focus on the future of the metaverse, 
Uh, we have an event lined up in London uh, next week, and we are which includes the CEO of Ofcom, Melanie Dawes, with our chairman, Lord Mandelson. There in conversation and some of the other presentations will form the nucleus of the podcast that we'll be broadcasting in a couple of weeks' time. So please tune in then. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.